0: All right, well, happy Friday, everybody. We are so glad that our listeners have stuck with us during this time. We're glad that you're here. We hope that you enjoy some of the amazing articles we've got for you today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. And I'm Angela Epley. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First
1: link. This comes from The New Yorker by Thomas Levinson. And this is called The Truth About Isaac Newton's Productive Plague. So I'm sure that you've seen a bunch of these memes going around about how William Shakespeare and Isaac Newton completed some of their amazing work when they were in a pandemic lockdown. Yes.
0: So why haven't you?
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I've seen the result in backlash as well in the case of being like, look, it is a pandemic. Be kind to yourself. Be patient. I really appreciated this article because it kind of takes a little bit of that contrary stance where it looks a little bit deeper into, you know, the historical timeline of Sir Isaac Newton and separating things from fact and fiction. And so ultimately, the thesis of this article goes on to say, yes, there were a lot of things that he was productive in doing during the plague, but it had less to do with the when and more to the who. Like, he was a genius before and after the plague. Right. And he was working on a lot of these things like the invention of calculus, creating the science of motion, really unraveling gravity. Like they found a list that had been created before the pandemic when he was at Cambridge, where he was really kind of, you know, thinking about these things and how all of these things work together. But the idea is that, you know, the gift of solitude really isn't the thing that made this happen. He was working on this before the plague. He kept working on it during the plague. And then when the plague was over and he went back to work, he just kept at it. So really, if you're into something... Just keep doing it. It doesn't mean that you have to achieve your very best during this time. And don't expect to, unless you are and were a genius before this, the same way that Sir Isaac Newton and William Shakespeare were.
0: Yeah. And well, and there's something else you said about he's in remote isolation. My understanding is that he basically like went out to the countryside, right? He wasn't stuck in a tenement in a big urban city.
1: Exactly. It was, I think, a farmhouse that was already in the family. So, And back then, most of the daily domestic things, I think, were probably being taken care of by the women in his life, whether right. it was mother, sister, whatever. So, you know, it's it's still a pretty cushy situation compared to being locked in an apartment with, you know, maybe a two-year-old that you have to be <laughs> caregiver for. Different situation. Right.
0: Yeah. No, I, and I think there's also an element as well of back then, Being a genius was necessary, but it wasn't sufficient. You also basically had to be male and rich. Like you were saying, most of the domestic tasks were taken care of by women, regardless of whether there was a plague going on or not. And you also, you know, the rich folks did have that ability to get out to the countryside and just kind of hang out somewhere else. They weren't under really as much restriction as a lot of people today are. Exactly.
1: Exactly. There's so many different historical class socioeconomic factors that go into this. And even by his own admission, when Sir Isaac Newton was asked how he worked out gravity, he replied, quote, by thinking on it continually.
0: But we can't sit there and say to ourselves, well, if I haven't invented a new physical theory to revolutionize science, (laughs) I'm a failure like that. Right. (laughs) Don't beat yourself up, is what they're saying.
1: (laughs) Exactly right. Exactly right. Next link. Next Next link.
0: link. All right. Well, this comes to us from our neighbors to the north in Canada, thewalrus.ca. The name of the article is Are Plants Listening to Us? It Depends who you ask. And I don't know if they intentionally were like, oh, ask the plants. I don't know, I don't know if that's <laughs> what they were going for there. But basically, uh, have you ever heard of the, the 1973 bestseller, The Secret Life of Plants? I have not. This was one of those science for the layperson kind of fad books. And it was by a journalist named Peter Tompkins and a former CIA operative named Christopher Byrd. Yeah. So neither of them were biologists. That is important. And Uh basically in this book, they coagulated all of this really, really disparate research to sort of make the case that plants can hear us, are thinking creatures, and quote, are endowed with personality and the attributes of the soul. And that was sort of the argument of this book was that plants are alive and that vegetarians are being just as cruel as meat eaters and we (laughs) should talk to plants, and they had, you know, they pulled in some studies that were like playing music makes plants grow better, and they had some mm-hmm. that were sort of based in reality, and then they had some that were like talking about flow of energy in the ether and like everything is music because all atoms vibrate. And so like, a little uh, woo-woo.
1: <laughs> that's right,
0: and unfortunately or not, the book was a major hit. They made millions of dollars, sold millions of copies. It inspired a whole range of musical genre where musicians would release albums meant for plants. Like somehow these musicians would sort of feel like, oh, I know what the plants will grow best yes. to. And the most popular of those was Mort Garson's 1976 Plantasia, which, <laughs> in which each track focused on a different species. Like he would claim, Ooh. oh, this is the track to grow begonias to, and this is the track that will make your spider fern the happiest or whatever. And there was a big backlash from the biology community saying, oh, my God, this is terrible. Why are people reading this? This is awful pseudoscience. It's crap. (laughs) And unfortunately, the backlash was also so strong that apparently it just absolutely killed all scientific research into sounds and plants for like 40 years. And there were a lot of scientists who were like, look, I'm not, don't group me in with those crazies. I'm just doing legitimate research about, you know, the function of sound waves and plants. And I'm not saying that the plant is dancing along to the groove or whatever. I'm just trying to do legitimate research. But grants dried up immediately. And it was a really, it put a total damper on the field for a long time. But Mm -hmm. now it has finally started to ease up a bit. People are a little more willing to kind of look at some of this stuff. And University of Sydney, Professor Monica Gagliano published Mm -hmm. a book in 2018 called Thus Spoke the Plant, sort of Mm -hmm. reviving the actual science behind this without, you know, she's very quick to say, I'm not talking about that stuff. Do not connect Mm -hmm. me with those wackos. But in her book, she cites a lot of repeatable confirmed studies that other people have been able to replicate, such as Mm -hmm. if pea plants are exposed to the sound of running water, even if there is no water in their actual dirt the roots will grow in the direction of the water sound. Hey! And they've also discovered several different species of flower that increase the sugar content of their nectar if they are played the sound of buzzing bees.
1: You know, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, evolutionarily speaking, those are inputs about the environment that can sort of signal to the plant this is a more or less favorable way to grow or evolve or orient oneself.
0: Exactly. They're not saying that the plants are having any sort of decision making about it. They're just noting right. that when you put them in this favorable environment, they respond in a way that would help them grow better. Yeah. It was interesting to me to see both sides of the idea of, yes, there is pseudoscience out there, but also a backlash against pseudoscience can stand in the way of legitimate science. Of real and you science, have to sort of, absolutely. Right. So you have to sort of go into it with an open mind, get rid of the pseudoscience wherever it crops up, but also go into it with an open mind.
1: Right. I mean, part of the scientific method is always to create hypotheses that are meant to sort of overreach, right, in an effort to kind of push our understanding in different directions. But it's not linear.
0: Well, and and the idea of being willing to test a hypothesis that, like you said, is probably wrong, but being willing to test it anyway, right? Like, even if you're really sure that this is not a thing, test it. And if your test shows it's not a thing, great. You've added to the body of knowledge, but you can't write stuff off just because there's a a political side to it. Mm -hmm.
1: Sure, sure. Unless you can prove it scientifically, in which case that's a nice, easy shutdown and should be ended discussion. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. But get your data. Get your data. Don't be like, ah, you're a hippie. I don't like anything you
1: say. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Sometimes the hippies have good, you know, ideas. They just need to be validated or backed up with a little bit of data and science. And oftentimes they can be. Yeah. Just tone them down a little bit.
0: Get the the, the woo-woo out of there. Make them sit down at a table and write down what they got.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. All right. Next link. Next, next link. link. Well, you know, I like talking about flowers. I found a good one from BBC News by Matt McGrath. This one's called Flower Power, How Plants Bounce Back After Crushing Blows. So apparently some flowers can recover with remarkable speed after major accident or traumas like being walked on or if they've been smushed a little bit. Oh, no. So, sci- so like
0: this this scientific <laughs> test was just somebody going and stepping on flowers.
1: <laughs> sure in a very controlled environment and you know they were able to determine different species or types of flowers respond in different ways but ultimately they found that species including orchid and sweet pea are able to reorient themselves in 10 to 48 hours after an injury but then there are some flowers like buttercups that cannot bounce back after damage which kind of Lends a little bit of credence to calling someone buttercup in a sort of dismissive or offhand manner. That's
0: right. right. One little boot to their face and they're done.
1: (laughs) Yes. So what they found is that certain species, especially the ones that are known as bilaterally symmetrical, which is where the left Hmm. and the right hand sides mirror each other, those tend to be the ones that are most rapidly recovering. Okay. really what they found is that the ability to reproduce for these flowers in particular depends on the alignment of their sexual organs or their stigma and their nectar tubes. And these flowers in particular, because their configuration of their sexual organs is really particular, they, I guess, are more motivated to bounce back and reorient themselves, get their stems to kind of rewind or realign. But they can do it pretty quickly in about a day or two.
0: So that's interesting. Basically, the idea that they are more fragile in a certain way because they can only do it in this particular way causes them to be better at recovering because that's the only way they're going to reproduce is if they can manage to recover from this blow exactly i really hope they have some slow-mo or or sped up video of this with like you know you see the the the, the researcher's foot crushing it and then you can watch like you know when you see those videos the time-lapse videos of a flower growing those are always so cool to me I want to see a time-lapse video of an orchid just being smushed and then oh. standing back up and, you know, going, screw you, scientist. I'm back up and ready to go again.
1: <laughs> the smush feels a little bit too snuff film 34 <laughs> for me. But, you know. <laughs> To each their own. I'm sure there's a huge audience for that as well.
0: That's right. I like a good comeback story. I want. I only want the smush <laughs> if the flower lives. Don't smush any buttercups because that'll just be sad. I'm not into that. Exactly. Yeah. So
1: buttercups, <laughs> sunflowers, petunias, and even wild roses are known as being radially symmetrical. So they're symmetrical kind of in that round 360 version of symmetry. Right. Mm-hmm. So those have fewer abilities to bounce back. So even if they lose their orientation, they're still capable of reproducing. So it's not as important for them to bounce back and get into this, you know, configuration alignment in order to reproduce. Because even if they're a little bent or smushed, man, they can still make it happen. Um, The article does have some really pretty pictures, but they're stills. So uh, content creators, this may be the thing to try. Just remember, it needs to be bilaterally symmetrical. Otherwise, you're going to smush a whole (laughs) bunch of flowers and someone's going to be after you. That's that's not a happy accident.
0: Now we're going to have like this tidal wave of influencers going out and stepping on flowers and posting it to their Instagram live stories. (laughs) I
1: mean, the Californians already did that with all the poppies and wildflowers after all of the like big rains that happened, I think maybe a year ago that they basically had to close off a lot of those natural canyons because there were influencer tourists who were coming in from different areas to get those shots and they were trampling a whole bunch of those flowers. Wow. Not cool.
0: Yeah man. Keep your influencer feet away. (laughs) (laughs) All
1: right. Next link. Next Next link.
0: link. Well, this one comes from the New York Times. It is a profile of Weird Al Yankovic. Are you (gasps) are you a fan of Weird
1: Al? Yes. Hard fan. When my sister and I were kids growing up, we would actually create these elaborate lip sync routines to Uh Weird Al songs that occasionally our parents would prevail upon us to perform in front of them and other relatives. (laughs) I'm very grateful YouTube did not exist at that time. But who knows? We may have been TikTok stars. But yes, I have always been a huge fan of Weird Al.
0: Well, that's really good because this article is, I don't want to say glowing, but it really goes into his background and it's got some really fascinating details that I'm a fan of his music, but I didn't really know much about him, the man. Oh, he's an A plus human being. Yeah, that's what this said as well. I'm glad that you mm-hmm. as as a fan know that because it is apparent <laughs> in everything they do. So he is uh, he is one of only five artists to have had a top 40 single in each of the last four decades. Which puts him on par with U2 and Michael Jackson and Madonna. Yes! He has this following that has just continued with him, not just as they've grown up, but then they reintroduce it to their children. Yeah. He's absolutely up there with the greatest musicians ever as far as sales and popularity.
1: Well, and it's so easy for him to, like, reinvent himself because there's always a fresh influx of music for him to parody. Right. Like, he's done, like, Iggy Azalea, and I'm sure he's got a Billie Eilish or something in the works. So every time that there's sort of like a big new hit, he can stay relevant because he's piggybacking. I don't want to discount the work that he does. There was a really great Twitter exchange that happened, I want to say, a few weeks ago. Madonna had posted a video to her Twitter of her kind of like making up lyrics to one of her own songs. Oh, yes. It was not great. Yes, I saw it. All Weird Al had to tweet was not so easy, is it? Yeah. So
0: key. Well, it it is hard. And that's one of the things this article goes into is the author of this article was able to basically go to his house and look through all of his materials and then go with him on tour for a little while. It was a really in-depth piece. And so Weird Al showed him his computer where he has all the notes for all of his songs. And so he oh. took him he took him into the folder for White and Nerdy, one of his most popular hits, and showed mm-hmm. him how as he's writing lyrics, he creates dozens of potential variations for every line. Instead oh, wow. of, you know, one verse, you've got 10 lines for each line in the verse and he's bolded the one that he's currently, you know, liking the most, but then mm-hmm. there's just all these other versions buried in there like this nesting doll. And then he's got yes. separate notes where he had like a list of 35 rhymes for geek I mean, just, you know, he's just sort of compiling all this stuff. And I imagine it's gotten a little easier with some of the uh, rhyming dictionary websites that are online available now. But when he started this, there was none of that. He was just brainstorming rhymes constantly all day long. And like you said, he's a very, very kind, gentle, sweet person. They noted that he never, ever swears, ever. Like even his wife at home Mm -hmm. has said, I have never heard him swear. I will try when it's just the two of us in our house. Say, come on, honey. Like, it's just us. You can swear now. And he won't do it. (laughs) He absolutely refuses. And uh, well, he's
1: also like a lifelong vegan, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Yep. And they go into like his house over in Los Angeles. It used to belong to rapper Heavy D. And because it's sort of like just clean and minimalist and just very beautiful, but also it doesn't have a lot of stuff in it. It's been featured in a ton of movie and commercial shoots to the point that like they'll be sitting and watching TV and suddenly that's their house on a music video (laughs) or in an episode of (laughs) NCIS or whatever. They noted that he's got a walk-in closet full of Hawaiian shirts of which, yes. you know, Weird Al says this is just a percentage of them. He's got more in storage or whatever.
1: Yes. Uh,
0: and, you know, they, they go into a little bit of his family details as well. His father had two purple hearts in World War II. Uh, wow. His mother bought him his first accordion from a door-to-door salesman when he was six. Like there's oh definitely gosh. there's an element in here of like his parents were a little weird, which I think would have to be how you end up with somebody like Weird Al. And they're very loving. They're very wonderful people. But it wasn't your average upbringing for sure.
1: Right. Um, I mean, there seems to be a balance of both eccentricity as well as like high performance. I mean, two purple hearts. That's that's a big deal. Right.
0: Right. Right. There was sort of this element of you have to work insanely hard. But work at what you're passionate about. If you want to work insanely hard at creating this silly song, go for it. But do not half-ass it.
1: It, Well, there's no way to half-ass an accordion. Right, that's true. It makes sense (laughs) that he got it into his hands at age six. But like any musical instrument, you have to practice insanely hard. It's very repetitive. And the accordion is famously difficult.
0: Yeah, well, and aside from the technical ability needed to play it, he apparently has just a really, really deep grounding in music theory. When he went to college and somebody saw an accordion in his room and they're like, can you really play that? He's like, yeah, name a song. And they're like, what are you (gasps) talking about? And he's like, just name a song. And they, you know, they pick some whatever John Lennon hit at the time. And he just started playing it because he had an understanding (sighs) of the music, you know, the chords behind it and how to play those notes. And he just could play basically any song. Uh, oh, and that's amazing. And he is, of course, secretly brilliant. Like a lot of times you look at these people and you're like, oh, he's so goofy. But to be goofy that well, you have to yeah. be brilliant. He graduated high school at 16 and was valedictorian. And he gave this great speech. Apparently his valedictorian speech was very formal and appropriate and, you know, solemn the way it's supposed to be. Except then at one point he went off on the future destruction of the earth due to global warming and the seas were going to rise and they we're going to wipe out everyone and the destruction of humanity. And like, Whoa. he went on this little rant, not in a serious way, but in a silly way. And all of the people stood up and applauded like they loved it. <gasps> so oh my gosh. he was he was getting attention even before he started making silly songs because he didn't actually start making songs until he was older. He had been listening to Dr. Demento when he was young, mm-hmm. but it wasn't until mm-hmm. college that he actually recorded something and sent it in. And the first hit that he had that went on Dr. Demento was My Bologna. From My Sharona. Yep. And it was recorded Mm -hmm. in the men's bathroom at his college because it had good acoustics. Oh my gosh. That was like his thing. (laughs) And apparently California Polytechnic still, they have a plaque in the bathroom commemorating it. Like this is the place where Weird Al
1: recorded his song. That's amazing.
0: And then his really big hit was on uh, April Fool's Day of 1984. MTV gave him a four hour block to do whatever he wanted. They said- it's Life? Yeah. Well, no, it was recorded, but it was like, they sort of knew, okay, it's April Fool's Day. We want to act like this wild and crazy guy has taken over the airwaves and is, is performing whatever he wants. And he did some just crazy, crazy stuff. He played some songs, but he also read these fake fan letters. He promoted fake contests. He spliced together a bunch of fake celebrity interviews using
1: real footage that had been on MTV. <laughs> this sounds like the genesis for UHF, the movie that he eventually, like, I really think the only movie he ever did. Right? Yes,
0: it was the only movie and it did not go well. <laughs> they, they talk about that was kind of the low point in his career. And it was like you said, new songs came out. And the new songs inspired him to say, oh, I can do this other kind of parody music, like still a parody, but I can go with the times. And actually his version of Madonna's song, Like a Virgin, that he did Like a Surgeon, Mm -hmm. it was actually suggested by Madonna. Apparently, Madonna sort of casually joked to one of her friends like, oh, I've got this big hit. I wonder how long it's going to be before Weird Al releases Like a Surgeon.
1: Yes.
0: Word got back to him and he was like, I'm doing it. I'm absolutely doing it. If you think it's a good idea, then heck yeah. Yeah. That's
1: almost tacit approval, right? Right.
0: Well, and that's something they talked about. He is very, very clear to get permission from the artist's. That's something that's important to him. Because by parody law, he doesn't have to. He could do a parody of any song and they can't say anything about it. But he likes to have the artist's permission because he doesn't want them getting angry and starting any kind of public spat about it. So he always gets permission. And they noted that in the early days, this was a little harder because he wasn't as big of a name. Not everybody knew who he was. So, like, to get Kurt Cobain's permission for Smells Like Nirvana, he used his connections to call the set of Saturday Night Live on the day that Kurt Cobain was going to be performing as the musical guest. So basically, he got on the phone and he's like, get Kurt Cobain over to this telephone. And they managed to drag him over and put him on the phone so he could ask permission.
1: That's amazing.
0: Yeah, and Kurt Cobain said yes, but it was like, this was at a time where he really wouldn't have it any other way to get in touch with Kurt Cobain. You know, right. send something to his agent, his agent's going to never even forward it on. But he exactly. Managed... He
1: wanted to get directly in touch with the artist and not any of the middlemen who are there to kind of protect or curate the information that gets to the artist. That's, That's right. That's protect so the admirable. brand.
0: Yeah. So he's very, very tenacious. He's a really good dude. Of course, the article ends on a really uplifting note. There's sort of The after the show moment where all the fans get to come up and he just will do anything they want. He'll sign anything they want. He'll listen to these stories where people come up and say, thank you. My parent was dying of cancer and your music got me through it. They basically present him as this kind and all listening being that will stand and stay as long as you want and listen to your story and give you a hug. And it just... Weird Al. Yeah, it's very uplifting. Weird Al is a nice, nice man. That's the (laughs) the takeaway. I've
1: I've always been a fan of his, but I've always had like super fans of his in my orbit, like through (laughs) different, you know, performance groups or anything like that. And I've always kind of, you know, regarded the super fans as like, okay, all right, that's cute. Right. But I'm going to have to read this article. It It may turn me into a super fan yet.
0: Yeah, well, and they said, you know, the author went to one of the concerts, he went to several of the concerts, but he said the number of people in the audience wearing Hawaiian shirts, wearing these wigs <laughs> and these, you know, big Ray-Ban style glasses, on the one hand, the initial reaction is like, oh, my God, I'm walking into a room full of weirdos. But then you get this sort of moment of, of solidarity where you're like, yes, we're yeah. all here because we love this thing and we're free to be whoever we want and it's OK to be silly. And he sort of ties it back into this. As a young nerd, having not a lot of friends, not a lot of social mm-hmm. opportunities, being able to just be yourself and being told that was OK is an incredibly powerful experience.
1: So, oh, yeah, I know. It's so heartwarming. Who would have thought that a
0: profile of Weird Al would make you tear up?
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm ready for it. I'm going to get my cry on and read that article later today. Well, good. <laughs>
0: Oh. All right. Next link. Next, next
1: link. link. All right. This is an article from Live Science by Mindy Weisberger called Disco Tardigrade Parties Under Microscope Wins International Photo Prize. <laughs> yeah. Disco Tardigrade. That kind of had me from the get go, mostly because I'm a big fan of Star Trek Discovery, which is usually called disco. And a tardigrade features very heavily into oh. of the, like, sort of engines and things like that. This has nothing to do with Star Trek. Uh, maybe that article was clickbaity to kind of capitalize on that recent phenomenon. But regardless, scientists basically use different fluorescent dyes to stain a sample of a tardigrade to show the contents of the stomach, the digestive tract, all the kind of little different bits. And it it looks like some Fantasia animation. So I mean, like it's, it's not animated, it's a still.
0: It's lit up from the inside, like you can see the internal pieces of
1: it. Pretty much. Basically, uh, tiny internal and external structures are illuminated in brilliant fluorescent colors. You see sort of like these indigos, these sky blues, these bright oranges, a poppy red. It's a really beautiful picture. It was captured by Taguide de Carvalho, manager of the Keith Porter Imaging Facility at the University of Maryland, and it was a regional winner in the 2019 Olympus Image of the Year Award. Every year, the competition awards the best in life science imaging worldwide, and usually this has to do with a photographer's proficiency with microscopy. So this is kind of the intent or parameters of this particular thing. This won a top regional prize for the Americas, but the contest pick for Global Image of the Year went to an image that was even more colorful. I guess they really have a bias for using these fluorescent stained dyes to right. look at things under a microscope that normally wouldn't look like much. But the one that won the Global Award was a fluorescent stained photo of a mouse brain slice and it almost kind of looks like a, an impressionist Monet garden where huh. you can see all these pieces and parts that are stained with and dye to kind of indicate what the parts look like, but were arranged in such a way that, you know, the colors were chosen, so it looks really pretty. They've got a link to all the winners on the Olympus Image of the Year 2019 website. Definitely worth a look and definitely just click on it just to look at that disco tardigrade because it is, I don't know, wallpaper worthy for an iPhone or your desktop. It's gorgeous.
0: That's really cool. I have this. I know in this case they use the dyes. Basically, they dyed it different colors so that the different structures would show up. But there is an element in a lot of creatures of they look different under black light or with infrared added to the visual spectrum to the like they're starting to discover that some creatures look completely different two other creatures who can see those frequencies. Oh, yeah. And they're kind of
1: like how flowers look to bees versus how they look to our eyes. Like they are electrified when you put them in UV vision or B vision. Right.
0: And there's this element of this evolutionary element of we can't see it because it doesn't matter to us. But to the bees, these flowers, you know, like you said, they light up, they look completely differently. And there's they're beautiful in ways that we can't appreciate, which I think is so cool. The idea that there's information out there that we're just not getting that the bees know more than we do
1: Yes, have a little bit of humility, you know, for our own limitations, and respect for other creatures having advantages that we're still discovering.
0: Yeah, and and get to work on those bioengineered eyes that can see UV light because I want to see that.
1: <laughs> agreed, agreed. That'll be great once we get sort of like AR, VR contact lenses or glasses where we can kind of toggle between bee vision, cat, and I guess cat and dog vision. They don't have as many colors, but you know, being able to see better in darker situations or whatever. Yeah, yeah,
0: they do have much better. Uh, night- night vision than we do i swear my dog thinks i'm an idiot because like because there are things that she can hear that i can't and there are things that in the dark she can see but in the light i can see better you gotta work together that's right right. i'm I'm still like i'm the one who feeds you like don't get too cocky (laughs) (laughs) all right next link next Next link. link so this i have to ask you are you a gamer
1: You know, I kind of used to be, I'm not big into first person shooters, which it seems to be like is the dominant game or like MMORPGs, they take up too much of my time, but like a classic melee-based RPG adventure, mm-hmm. something that's not tactical or turn-based. I actually, I, I hopefully will get it, but I pre-ordered a Switch that should arrive later this month, and I'm really looking forward to it, mostly for Animal Crossing, but also for Zelda Breath of the Wild and maybe, you know, some other games. But I'm looking forward to, like, trying to get back into it because I really miss it, and I know the tech's come a long way.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, this one is about the very famous World of Warcraft.
1: Ah, yes.
0: In this particular case, this article is talking about an incident that happened inside the game of World of Warcraft in 2005. There was effectively a viral outbreak and some professors were able to model what happened in the game to sort of predict human behavior now. And we're seeing that their model holds up. So what happened (gasps) in the game was it was sort of a complicated set of scenarios. But the idea is in World of Warcraft and in many different games, you have what's called a debuff which is an attack from an enemy that is a status on you that sort of perpetually damages you until it's cured, right? So instead Mm -hmm. of smacking you and you lose points, they poison you and you just continually Mm -hmm. sit there losing points until you are cured or you die, one of the two. Right. So in 2005, they released a new area of the map because part of World of Warcraft is it's this world building thing that you're all playing together in real Mm -hmm. time. So as the game goes on, as more and more people have been playing, they've played all the areas. The developers have to release a new area with a new boss. Mm-hmm. And usually these new areas are for very, very advanced players because they've mm-hmm. had the time to build up their characters. Whereas people who've just started can't and shouldn't go to these new areas, right? Right. So they released a new area called Zolgarub, which had, among other things, a massive winged serpent boss named Hakar. And Hakar's thing, aside from just attacking you and you had to attack him back, was that he would infect anyone battling him with this status called Corrupted Blood. And that was just his mm. debuff. And it was not really a big deal. If you were very, very powerful, it would just sort of be like a, a slight hindrance, where it's constantly knocking you down and you have to constantly heal yourself until the battle's over and then you can clear it. Because it was right, Just allergies, Right. right. And it wasn't, but it wasn't something that he did to you specifically. It was sort of being in proximity to him, automatically gave it to you. So if you tried to cure it during the battle, you just get it again. And mm. the other cool thing about this was that it would also go to your pets. And your pets are sort of the, something specific to World of Warcraft. So you can sort of summon them to help you in battle. And then Mm -hmm. they can also be damaged by this corrupted blood thing. And so the idea behind this was, you know, you have this very powerful battle, you beat the guy, you heal yourself, and then you go on with the game. But because Mm -hmm. the game had this instant transport ability where you could instantaneously go back to a major city hub to go do some shopping or do whatever, some players Mm -hmm. would leave and still be infected with this thing and hadn't bothered to cure themselves before they went back to the city. And the cities are full of weaker characters. Everybody goes to the cities.
1: Oh, and so it was transmissible through the characters?
0: Right, yes. So if the character had this status, the status would go to anybody standing next to them. And that's not really what they intended. Their thinking was, we just want this thing to be on you the whole time you're in the battle. And then obviously you should cure it as soon as you're done with the battle. But because some people went back to the cities... It immediately started killing anybody in their vicinity because these (gasps) were all weaker characters.
1: Yeah. And
0: for a character to die, you can resurrect, but it invalidates dozens or even hundreds of hours of gameplay. To kill a character is a big deal. Yeah. And so as this started happening, word got out on the message boards like, oh, my God, people coming back from this area. There's something wrong. There's a bug. I just died. I was walking through the city and I died for no reason. And this was spreading everywhere and, you know, four million people play this game. So it spread through all of these cities of people who didn't even know this new area had opened up. There were just people flooding the message boards with, oh, my God, what's happening? There's an outbreak in the city. <sighs> and people were doing what they did now, which is like they were fleeing to their homes out kind of outside oh of the cities gosh. and like just locking themselves in and not playing and not logging on because they were so afraid that they were going to catch it.
1: <gasps> just, you know, the idea of the word bug being operative here is right. so brilliant on so many levels. Absolutely. Because, I mean, obviously it may have been just sort of a coding bug, but the way that it operated mimics perfectly a viral bug, quote, right. unquote. That's amazing.
0: Well, and the developers basically, pretty quickly they realized what happened and they sort of changed the corrupted blood function of Hakar so that it wouldn't, it, you know, you would no longer be getting it from him in that way. But it was still out there. The bug was still out there. And one of the big vectors that continually caused problems, even after they tried to fix it manually, was people's pets. Like I said, they could be dismissed oh, because the oh. the idea was if a pet dies, that's a huge points loss. Like that's really, really, really discouraged. You don't want your pet to die in the game. And so if the pet got the status and was getting closer to death, they'd say, okay, I dismiss you, sort of puts them in stasis so they can't get hurt anymore until you come back out. And they would forget that their pet had this. They'd go to the city, they'd do (gasps) whatever. And then they would just sort of, oh, bring my pet out. And instantly (laughs) hundreds of people around them would die. And, oh, my god! And it, they, they noted that from player experience, the pets were actually the biggest vector. That was the real problem. But even then, there, yeah. w- there was a second vector that they couldn't control. All of the NPCs or non-player characters, like the shopkeepers or the people who sold yeah. you armor, they were very, very, very powerful by design because, if, you know, they don't want some newbie walking up going, oh, I'm going to punch the shopkeeper and then the shopkeeper's dead and you have to, like, rebuild that character just to maintain the world. So the shopkeepers and all those people are very, very powerful. So they became asymptomatic carriers, basically.
1: Oh. They would get it <laughs>
0: and they'd just be standing at their little shop stall killing anyone who walked
1: up. <laughs> and it was That's incredible. It was
0: a real problem. They noted obviously there are some differences between this and a real outbreak. The the reproductive rate of this virus, they said was ten to the second every hour. Oh my and that, god. So which is obviously much higher than actual viruses, which are like, you know, a one to Shh. three or something. But it went it tore through these cities very, very quickly. There was a lot of panic. And at the same time, there were other people who said, I'm really strong. I don't care. I'm going to keep walking around. and I don't care if I kill weaker people. Uh And there were people who deliberately infected because they thought (gasps) chaos is fun, you know? And these are oh things Oh my gosh, that uh, yeah. but these are things that we see now. in the real world. Yeah, absolutely. And that was yeah. what this these two professors, it was um Nina Pfefferman and Eric Lofgren, who Nina Pfefferman was a player of the game and also an epidemiologist. And she said, Oh my god, this is a perfect model for what's happening. And so they pulled the right. data out and did the whole thing. And they wrote their paper in two thousand seven. And some people said, you know, this is not a real valid model. This is a game. People are encouraged to behave in ways that they don't play in real yeah. life. But all the players said, no, this is real life. (laughs) This is how people act when they're afraid that they're going to lose something.
1: That's absolutely. I think it's, you know, for a model, even with the different outliers about like, you know, the reproductive rate being, you know, nowhere near what we're seeing now or hopefully will in the future. The human behavior aspect and being able to chart that, especially because it was unintentional. Unknown, difficult to fully understand mm-hmm. that all of those you know, discoveries and understanding about it had to kind of happen in, in phases in real time. Yeah, as a model for human behavior, that sounds extremely valuable. It
0: really was. And like I said, there were four million players playing the game at the time, which is roughly the population of New Zealand. So, I mean, no. No, as far as the sample
1: size goes, you could never replicate something like that in some kind of like scientific experiment. Absolutely.
0: And ultimately, uh, they note that the game developers did have an option that real people do not have, which is that they tried and tried to sort of bring it under control. They quarantined whole areas and they just couldn't make it happen. So after a week, they reset the servers. And basically what they, they they rolled back so that any progress anybody had made in the last week was just eliminated. They went back to the status of what was everybody doing right before we released this area. Yeah. And we did don't, not we don't really area. have
1: that option. No. There. I mean, we've definitely shut everything down and kind of, quote unquote, closed the servers. But there's no recent save that yeah. we can just load and let that run. Yeah, there's no back in time button.
0: But that was what Blizzard mm-hmm. had to do. I mean, from a PR standpoint... To have to roll back a week's worth of gameplay is a huge deal. That was really a very tough decision for them to make, but it was what they had to do. And ultimately, people agreed, no, this was what had to happen because so many characters were lost during this. But in the absence of a time travel button, all we can do is what we're doing now.
1: Yeah. Wow. What a fascinating study. Yeah. And
0: so, like I said, now it's shown that it's basically accurate. Everything that they modeled is pretty much what's happening. And so now they're revisiting, saying, "Okay, well, if it's been correct so far, what can we predict in the future? And it's being uh, apparently a little bit helpful, I guess, for people making public health policy to say, no, no matter what we do, there are going to be people who try to break quarantine. So quarantine is not the only tool in our toolbox. We have to do sure. things besides quarantine because there's always going to be people who break it.
1: Yeah, I mean, with the experts we have in place, maybe a study looking at an MMORPG will be considered more valid than other scientific reports and studies <laughs> that are being discounted left and right. That's right. That's if, this, if
0: this is what gets through to people, I'm all for it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right. Next link. Next, Next link. link. Uh, this is a quickie from Amanda Kuzer from CNET called "See a Giant Siphonophore: A Bizarre Ocean Creature That Looks Like Silly String." Like what? so, what? So it's like a. I don't understand what it looks like. Yeah, well, it doesn't look like. Go a, to the article. A can i a picture? <laughs> <laughs> no. Basically, the picture almost looks like a kind of celestial topographical map so it's like you get a swath of blue ocean and then you've got this sort of wiggly spiral and this sort of bioluminescent glowing that kind of goes in this warped concentric circle but the outer ring alone of the siphonus four that and i may be pronouncing that terribly that is pictured here the outer ring alone is estimated at 154 feet whoa so this is like super long a really 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 long skinny snake Exactly. It's a cr- described in the article as a crazy long ocean creature. This was found during an expedition to study the Ningaloo Canyons off the western coast of Australia. Um, it's the largest that's ever recorded and in what they call strange UFO-like feeding posture. Huh. <laughs> it's basically related to a jellyfish. It looks like it, it's all one animal, but it's actually a collection of parts. Huh. It's described as being, quote, made of millions of interconnected clones, like if the bo- Borg and the Clone Wars had a baby together. Oh no,
0: that sounds <laughs> so right to... for taking over the world. Like that—that that sounds like a life form we don't want to mess with.
1: Well, thankfully, it's not humanoid in the way that maybe the Borg or even the clones that are designed in the Star Wars world are. But basically, uh, there are a dozen different jobs that a clone can do in the colony. And each clone is specialized to a particular task. So we're looking at sort of like a hive mind kind of operation here. And it is still like a long, skinny sort of thing. But it goes into detail. It links to an entire thread from uh, the scientists who discovered it. It's kind of a quick article, but it's worth a look just because, you know, we're still discovering what some of the deep sea creatures are that have been existing or are new to at least our imaginations and body of knowledge and this one looks like silly strength. This why not
0: this sounds to me though like the kind of creature where like certain worms if you cut it in half you don't kill it you've just created two worms
1: mm-hmm. see but if yeah. the worms were dedicated to different things like worms i understand kind of have like whole ecosystems within themselves where they've got you know a digestive system or mm-hmm. you know operations for movement the way this is being described is like. This part of the colony, this piece of the clone, is dedicated towards maybe environmental sensing. And this one's dedicated towards uh, food input. And this one might be dedicated towards waste output. So it's more kind of that that colony hive mind situation as opposed to just like, I don't know, asexual reproduction where you split a worm in half and it can kind of mm-hmm. just develop into its missing parts. And each one operates independently from one my, another.
0: My key takeaway here, though, is it can be killed because that's what I'm concerned with. I don't want this thing... <laughs> Getting too powerful and too big. I want to know what the uh, what the chink in the armor is. If we can... If... <laughs> well, if we
1: end up colonizing deep sea, yeah. I'm sure that will become a much more relevant area of study. But for now... You know, it's in a part of the world that we're not really bothering that much. We're just kind of exploring, seeing what's out there. If it turns out this can go super sentient and disrupt our way of life beyond what this current pandemic is doing, yeah, yeah, maybe we go a little guns a-blazing. But for now, let's just marvel in its unique weirdness. No,
0: no, no. I gotta have, I gotta have a, a disaster plan here. <laughs> I'm fascinated, though. So, like, I mean, but if each piece is a separate piece... Does that mean that like uh, two siphonophores could donate pieces to each other? Like I could walk up to you and take your arm and just have a third arm?
1: (laughs) I'm not sure. I mean, all of the pieces still look like long, wormy, silly string things. Mm -hmm. But if you go to the article, um, let's see, Rebecca Helm, a marine biologist from the University of North Carolina, Asheville, She's got a huge, long thread. If you want to dive deeper into what makes these ocean animals so amazing,
0: I think I think I do. I'm going there right after this. this is, <laughs> it's it's got that cool element, but it's also it's got a little fear, which is just right up my alley. <laughs> that
1: that's fine. I'll let you take the uh, fearful one. I'm going to dive into that weird al article. That's and right. Just feel good about you know this underrated Messiah and prophet of goodness.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, that sounds good. That is all we have time for today. We're glad that you joined us. We hope everybody is staying safe and healthy out there. We hope that we could bring a little levity and joy into your life and keep you apprised of interesting things that are not the most interesting thing that we unfortunately have to focus on (laughs) right now. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to this week. What did people do before toilet paper? The mysterious demise of freshwater mussels. And scientists ponder how jugglers seem to defy limits to human reaction times. So all those, plus the ones we talked about today and many more, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you would like to help support our podcast, you can visit patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. And we also have some goodies up there if you want to see some behind-the-scenes photos or some outtakes that we would rather never get out. But I put them out there anyway because I can. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.